from Movendi International, I'm Mike Dünnbier. This is the Alcohol Issues Podcast. It's Thursday, September 17, 2020. Welcome to the third episode of the Alcohol Issues Podcast, our weekly conversation about the latest alcohol issues in policy and science and new alcohol industry revelations. Every episode we are also bringing you an in-depth conversation about alcohol issues of global importance. This week we highlight three alcohol issues that we think deserve special attention. In policy news we will look at the alcohol burden in the United Kingdom. In science digest we will talk about alcohol use and brain damage. And in the Big Alcohol Exposed segment we will dive into a new report about how health harmful industries exploit COVID-19 for marketing purposes. But first we begin with an in-depth conversation with another leader in the global effort to support countries to make full use of the potential that lies in alcohol policy best buy solutions. For this third episode I'm talking with Dudley Tarleton who is a program specialist for health and development at the United Nations Development Program UNDP. It's an insightful conversation that provides unique perspectives on alcohol as obstacle to development and some inspiring ideas how to tackle it. UNDP, in my opinion, stands out among UN programs and agencies for their strong support of WHO and for their commitment to work on alcohol health and development. And I talk with Dudley about why UNDP is so committed and why some other programs in the UN are not yet addressing alcohol harm in their specific fields of expertise. Dudley and UNDP are addressing alcohol as obstacle to development, not only from a health burden perspective, but they are also making other linkages, for example, to poverty, to economy and to the environment. Dudley is going more into details regarding this unique approach. And in our conversation we also talk about alcohol policy solutions as catalysts for development. We discuss how that actually works, what resonates with the countries that UNDP works with and what Dudley thinks are key issues to advance alcohol policy solutions in order to accelerate the SDGs. So here is the conversation. Hi Dudley, um, uh, thank you for uh, coming on the podcast uh, today. And just to get started, uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at UNDP? Sure, thanks Mike and, and morning. Um, I'm, I'm Dudley Tarleton, I've been with the UN for ah, 20 years this month, basically. Um, and I've been most of that time at the UN Development Program, where I'm a policy specialist on health and development. And we um, traditionally, for the first few years of my time there, um, worked really almost exclusively on HIV, TB, and malaria. But in recent years, um, have expanded to take a more development-oriented look at health. And as part of that, we've been expanding into non-communicable diseases, um, of which alcohol is a significant risk factor. 
And I um, work with a team that's based um, all over the world, really. Um, we're, the headquarters are in New York, and so the, the main part of the team are there. I'm in a big part of a team that's based in Istanbul, um, where we have regional offices for Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And we've also got regional teams uh, based in Bangkok and um, Panama. And uh, the main driver of the work are the, the country offices that UNDP have, which are present in, I think, about 170 countries. Not all of them work on the same portfolio, and it's, it's mixed across different regions, of course, to, to match the priorities in each country. Uh, but we try to coordinate and, and support the work of those country offices and still contribute to some, some global, broader efforts, such as with WHO and with your team and, and others working on similar issues. Thank you, and I think that sets it up very well. I wanted to start by asking, so the UN Development Program obviously plays an important role in the Agenda 2030, advancing development all over the world. Just from the beginning, how come UNDP is uh, working on and collaborating with the WHO on alcohol. Mm -hmm. What is it that has uh, made the UNDP take up this issue? Sure. So, so a couple of things. The traditionally is uh, uh, we didn't necessarily work on alcohol. Our, our health work was quite narrower in scope, um, but we're you know roughly guided by the disease burden. And globally, when you've got such a huge number, of, you know, between three and four million deaths every year from alcohol-related causes, um, it, it gets to be too big to ignore. And just the health burden alone is such a damper on, on development progress that it needs to be addressed. So part of it is driven by this significant and underappreciated disease burden. And then part of it is also just the almost unique um, linkages uh, that there is between succeeding or failing on alcohol control and other development efforts. I mean, really, the, the way that you can extend or look at the linkages between alcohol and poverty reduction or reducing gender inequalities or income inequalities or uh, broader economic growth among developing economies, um, there's significant and increasingly realized uh, environmental impacts from yeah. alcohol. Uh, growth, uh, consumption, uh, production, the whole chain. Um, they're really, the, the, more, the deeper you look, the more opportunities you can see for including alcohol in other sustainable development efforts. And part of, it, part of the UNDP approach um, is to embed it in our work on non-communicable diseases because it's such a significant driver of those. And that work is, is really getting some legs and expanding. Um, so it's good that we've got it fully established with a lot of countries addressing it and, and working on it. Um, but we feel like still that misses about half of the disease burden. So mm -hmm. we, if we don't look at alcohol specifically you know, as an end of its own, we miss out on a lot of the, the progress that could be made by reducing injuries or uh, reducing communicable diseases. Um, road safety, all of these other things. We think if we look at just the NCD impacts, then it's good, but it's not exactly where we want to be yet. And so this is interesting to hear that um, your efforts are guided by the evidence and that both the disease burden, the mortality rates, but also other aspects of alcohol harm, as you said, are 
uh, dampening or hindering uh, development. And you mentioned poverty, gender, economic growth, even the environment um, and inequalities. And in the work that you are doing, um, you mentioned the country offices as, as well, so the direct contacts to governments. What are the, the issues that drive interest from governments the most from this long list that you now talked about? I think the governments that we work with recognize the, you know, the scale of the harm uh, from alcohol. You know, predominantly, they approach us as, to address it as a health issue, um, which I think is, is predictable and, and understandable. And that may be also because we, our team working on it, work on health. So it may just be a natural result of the relationships we have with these governments. Um, but we are increasingly seeing that it's being prioritized. Um, there's a few different ways the WHO measure the, the sort of policy engagement and the, the leadership countries have on, on alcohol control. Um, but we can feel the, the increasing demand from countries uh, reaching out and saying, this is something we want uh, the UN's help with. You know, several countries, even in the last few weeks, have asked for help with um, drafting new alcohol uh, policies or strategies. And we'd, we'd like to have a full program to support and meet those demands. And I wanted to ask about this because, as you know, this is also a reality that we uh, face, that um, our members working in the communities, in the countries, they see that governments actually want to address it. Um, Mm. But then uh, there seems to be a bottleneck. So the connection between uh, the community and the government, the government and the UN system, and somewhere resources are lacking or political uh, will is lacking. You mentioned now that there should be a a program on supporting governments in terms of alcohol control measures. So where do you see are these gaps to really um, help governments? And what are the the challenges you are seeing in this work? No, it's it's exactly, I think, the, the crux of the issue now. And we're at a bit of a crossroads and need to figure out how to to overcome this. And I, we've thought a fair amount about it, um, either informally just talking among colleagues or, or you know, in sort of strategy sessions to try to, to plan going forward. And I think if we look internally within the UN, um, there hasn't been the uptake these issues that there has been, for instance, on tobacco control. Mm. And that may be because there's a global, you know, internationally ratified treaty um, that makes it international law that's followed by domestic law to implement it. There's no similar treaty or convention on alcohol control. So that, you know, sort of slows things and and sort of makes the mandate for the UN to work on it a little bit less concrete. But part of it is also, I think, inertia that in the first part of the century, the UN um, and and the donors that support it invested a lot in tackling some some really acute, significant challenges um, and reducing big communicable diseases um, and it's it's tough to transition away f- from that not well not necessarily it doesn't need to be away from that but to bring on the new things when there's a whole cadre of international experts who have come of age and gained their experience working on these specific mm-hmm. vertical disease programs and now there's not always the same level of expertise and and, and you know years of wisdom to draw on for working on these things. There's plenty of experts in the world who know exactly what needs to be done for alcohol mm. control to be effective, but they're not necessarily embedded in all of the decision-making bodies or the donor committees, you know, the same way that they would be um, in 
communicable diseases. So part of that's the internal thing. And then part of the, the obstacle is external as well. And just to be completely frank about it, there are a lot of economic commercial interests that would not like to see advances on tobacco control, sorry, on alcohol control. Yeah. And these are really influential voices in a lot of capitals that make a lot of decisions about what we prioritize um, either as the UN or as a bilateral development agency or as a large NGO or umbrella or even as the governments um, making their own sovereign decisions of what they want to prioritize. The, the influence is subtle sometimes, very often it's subtle and it's not, doesn't even need to be spoken. And other times it can be more blunt and straightforward. Um, but it's something we we should acknowledge um, and and address and you know put on the table as a real issue blocking really concerted scaled up progress on alcohol control. Yeah, I think this point I have actually never heard it before um, that there is so such a vast experience in the Millennium Development Goals and. Uh, Uh, these issues uh, there as they pertain to health and development and that it's actually not so easy then to transition to new development and health issues like that. So I think that is uh, quite interesting because from our perspective, as you know, uh, we are quite impressed and feel inspired by the work that UNDP is doing because it stands out among the UN branches, agencies and, and programs where um, I think And at first glance, you would imagine that uh, the agency working on child rights would uh, have a program to help address alcohol or the agency working on uh, women's rights and gender equality would have a program. And so can you speak to um, beyond uh, this uh, point that you have already highlighted, why mm. that that is the case that UNDP still stands out um, as a UN agency addressing alcohol as obstacle to development? Yeah, I've thought a little bit about that as well. And I think it may be because our mandate compared to other UN agencies is, is a mile wide and sometimes seems like it's an inch deep. I think my colleagues are more suited to taking on new things where they don't have the, the years of expertise and PhD experience doing, but know that it's a priority and are able to make the connections and get up to speed enough to do it. And over the, the last few years, we've put a lot of effort into bringing on board other UNDP colleagues, mm. especially in the health team, to make them comfortable and knowing that the work is not rocket science. You don't need you know, to be the world's expert to make a contribution to it. And to carve out a space for everyone to include this as part of their, their portfolio. And I think the next step is to get beyond the health specific teams and make sure that everyone who's working in the organization on environment know about the linkages that can be made between alcohol control and the environment same with with gender uh, with human rights all these aspects just to see exactly where it fits in and then the same process beyond um, UNDP just really taking a lot of that that comfort level and saying okay you don't need to wait until you've got the full mandate and the perfect experience and and you're the recognized expert in the world to take one step forward and make a contribution to it. I think UNDP, just because we cover development broadly, we are more comfortable picking up pieces that may just be lying around that can provide good solutions um, mm. rather than sticking you know, narrowly to a defined mandate. 
this is also very interesting and I, I think you make two interesting points that I would like to follow up on. One is this uh, perception of complexity when it comes to alcohol prevention and control. And you mentioned the alcohol industry interference uh, subtly or bluntly. And I think these complexity arguments, they might actually have this kind of chilling or cooling effect where uh, even experts feel that they need to do too many homeworks in this uh, kind of environment where is so, there is so much to do already. So I thought this was an interesting point. And on this effort that you are uh, systematically making to go beyond the silos and to facilitate these linkages, is there anything you see you need more, more evidence or more stories from the communities, examples where civil society is making these linkages that would help you um, advance these conversations? And what is your sense there? Yeah, I feel like the, in a way, civil society is out ahead of a lot of the, the other stakeholders working on this. So part of it is we need to you know, follow that lead and, and make sure that the, the platforms we give and the voices and the connections we make and you know, helping civil society have an audience with the right decision makers, that needs to all be, the existing ones need to be alcohol control informed. And we also need to have alcohol control specific efforts to do this. Um, in terms of, of how we um, put this, you know, these considerations and these, these priorities into our work, um, it needs to be really this, this twofold approach. We need to have space and, and you know, ability and financing to have alcohol specific interventions and activities and projects. And then we need to also be able to embed alcohol in broader SDG uh, efforts. And so I think we work both on both sides of those. I think that's the best way we can move things forward. And you mentioned that I think it is quite remarkable that UNDP is able to pick up pieces, as you said, that are lying around and uh, look for where good solutions are to actually advance development, as is your mandate. So can you talk a little bit about what are the solutions in um, alcohol control that you know or evidence shows are really helping to advance development? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this is one of the important things we need to get across to our, you know, internally to the people we work with, is that it's not as hard to make an impact on alcohol control as it seems like it would be from the outside. I think the assumption is that the focus is going to be on essentially behavior change campaigns. And really, we're well positioned with WHO to help pull policy levers and have population level interventions that can really affect things and without having to spend you know years and and huge sums of money with these long campaigns that still are, are difficult to do and take a long time to see the impacts we really focus on on policy change mm. and follow who's advice and evidence on on what's effective and what's most cost effective and and we look especially at what can be gained within a short term because the mm. The benefits of alcohol control are, are really, they, they, they compound greatly over time. And so you're, the biggest benefits come when you're looking a couple of decades out. But for the policymakers who are in a position now to, to drive things, they need to know what can happen in their own, you know, often in their own political cycle. Yeah. Um, and so we need to, to foreground those immediate benefits, foreground how popular these policies and laws 
actually are when framed as health interventions and sort of help create that political space to make these policy changes. The, the ones that we, um, you know, we don't have deep expertise in the specific policies, but the ones that we advocate for are, they've been packaged by a group of, of WHO and UN and civil society um, and alcohol control experts under the rubric of, um, we call it SAFER. And it's um, an acronym for the five most cost-effective um, interventions for alcohol control. And they are, and I forget the ac acronym exactly, but to increase excise taxes, to reduce the affordability of alcohol, to reduce the retail availability, to, to have smart regulations on the retail availability of alcohol, to offer brief interventions um, for people who have either have or think they may have alcohol use disorders, yeah. to um, limit or ban alcohol advertising promotion and sponsorship. Yeah. And the fifth one is, you can help me out. Driving under the influence of alcohol. Yeah. Countermeasures. Exactly. Kind of another popular policy that, that's you know, easily implemented at not a great cost that has a significant return. Yeah. And so packaging these together and putting them forward to policymakers. And ideally, we want to make a, a cost-benefit analysis of, of the implementation and the, and the benefits of doing it and just sort of clear the way and preempt any arguments against it, whether it's that these, these efforts will cost jobs, that they will you know, harm the economy, that they're not feasible, that they're not effective. We know that there's evidence out there, um, both from, from academia and literature, but mm. also from real lived examples of countries who have made progress, that we can sort of preempt each of these arguments, go to the governments and decision makers with the package and say, this is what you can gain by doing it. This is what you can expect. And you can count on the UN and other civil society advocate partners to help get it through and implement it. Yeah, and just on a side note, thank you for testing my knowledge of SAFER, um, these, <laughs> these five interventions. I think we can put um, a link to uh, actually the SAFER webpage uh, into the show notes. And following up, I, I wanted to ask, because you mentioned that the demands from countries for support in developing alcohol policy solutions is increasing. And especially um, governments address it as a health issue. Um, but you also, I think, have now talked about the, these, uh, the economic dimensions, like the cost-benefit analysis, the, the impact on job losses and harming the economy. So can you talk a little bit about, in your work with the countries, what is it that drives interest? What mm -hmm. is it that drives action, so to say? Yeah, so it, it seems a bit crass to put something that's so human and personal um, in economic terms, but we know that, that ministries of finance or planning or economy, you know, their, their responsibility is to make decisions based on those considerations. Mm. So we want to present, you know, because the evidence is there and because these, are, these really are cost-effective interventions that grow economies and, and deliver increased revenue for governments, and they just, they have a broad range of benefits. We, we do want to prioritize framing them in that way. And then also we, we've worked with, with your group and with WHO um, several years ago on an initiative that looks at the linkages, the you know, three-way linkages between infectious diseases, primarily HIV and tuberculosis, harmful use of alcohol, and uh, gender-based violence. Mm. 
that those linkages were were you know underappreciated, stronger than than would be expected, and easy to to benefit all three of them with a little bit of coordination and, and working across those silos. Um, this it was a really interesting um, one because we had almost no funding to do it, so it was, it was no one's real job to to work on this initiative. So it was sort of a side project, but we were able to work with, I think it was. 21 countries, um, most of them in, in Africa. And we, there was no follow-up. We had meetings, worked with them, and then left. And because we weren't able to sustain that follow-up, we, we had low expectations for how the work would be carried through. But because they, the governments prioritized it and because civil society helped advocate for it, we were really impressed with the way that the roadmaps that were developed in those short three-day meetings were, were delivered on and followed through. So we know that the initiative is there, the capacity is there to deliver on it, and the, the prioritization is there. It's a matter of linking the different sectors and ministries who need to make the contributions and getting some kind of financing funding that, that is commensurate with the, the burden of disease that, that it brings. And on this point, um, my last question before we let you go to all the important work that you are doing, Dudley. Now you, I think this program that you now briefly described, um, linking alcohol to gender-based violence and infectious diseases, that goes back to your earlier comment also about the Millennium Development Goals and your efforts uh, in, within UNDP to link different experts. So I wanted to ask you in, in this effort now to actually bring in other experts and to mainstream alcohol policy considerations Going into the future, what is it you you think are the the things that will advance the conversation, or what are the key issues or the key tools that will make a difference for um, alcohol policy development in countries around mm -hmm. the world? Yeah, so I think globally, just zooming out and looking at it from from a high level view, I think yeah. greater engagement across sectors, across organizations, across stakeholders. Um, we, we've got a few champions in each sphere, a few, a few governments, a few donors, a few UN agencies, um, but making sure it's broadly and, and widely addressed so that it's not the same faces in, in a lot of the same meetings. Mm. That's, the, I see, the main key to getting things sustainably going. And then in terms of, of UNDPs and my own project's uh, work, I think really we want to focus. We've, we've had good traction with framing non-communicable diseases as an economic issue. And I think that there's a place to do the same thing for alcohol, to take mm -hmm. the overall huge price tag that alcohol-related harm places on an economy and on families and people individually. I think that will help get the attention to drive the policy changes that will address it. And I think we can work to look at, you know, making sure governments know that already the status quo is significant economic losses mm. year on year, compounding each year and heading the wrong direction. And I think that's what we want to focus on immediately, really, in the next few months. And with uh, this, I think that... Uh, th that sounds like a very powerful blueprint, um, especially also given that there is this uh, safer uh, technical package uh, where the cost effectiveness 
can be shown. So I want to thank you for taking time and uh, also explaining, uh, I think, some of these insights that you have gained uh, to us and wish you good luck for this really important work and UNDP together with WHO leading the way here. So thank you so much, Dudley. Thanks, Mike, and congratulations on the great work that, that you and Movendi have done. It's really, it's a, it's a, it's a passion project, I think, for the, the people working on it, and we yeah. want to make sure it's grounded and, and keeps bearing fruit. Appreciate that. So take care, Dudley. Thank you so much you for too, coming Mike. on. Thanks. Enjoy the day. Here are the alcohol issues you need to know about this week. In terms of alcohol policy news, this week we published a long read about alcohol harm in the UK to foster understanding of current issues and the alcohol burden in the country. Two reports came out recently that, taken together, bring into focus the specific alcohol issues troubling British society and the solutions that communities are calling for. Alcohol harm in Britain has remained a hidden health crisis for a long time. But now, with the COVID-19 pandemic, the alcohol burden has been brought into sharp focus. A new report from the Commission on Alcohol Harm is now calling for scientific evidence-based alcohol policy solutions such as taxation and minimum unit price, recommended by the World Health Organization to curb the growing alcohol harm. And another brand new report, this time by the Royal College of Psychiatrists, calls for urgent investments in services for people with alcohol and other drug problems, as new figures show high-risk alcohol use nearly doubled during the pandemic. Three figures in our story stand out and help summarize the alcohol burden. 21 billion pounds. That's the total societal costs of alcohol harm per year in Britain. And this figure shows the overall burden and the pressure alcohol harm puts on the Treasury Department and society at large. 3.5 billion pounds. That's the annual costs of alcohol to the National Health Service showing the strain alcohol puts on the health system and emergency services, which is specifically important now in this public health crisis. 8.4 million British people consume alcohol in high-risk amounts. This number actually doubled during the pandemic, showing that the problems are accelerating and not slowing down. The solutions now that communities are calling for are, I think, quite interesting. Firstly, they call for higher alcohol prices through taxation and minimum unit price. Secondly, they call for a comprehensive alcohol strategy to tackle alcohol's harm to others, such as violence against women and children growing up in families with alcohol problems. Thirdly, they are calling for bigger investments in services for people needing treatment, care and recovery support due to alcohol use disorder. And fourthly, quite interestingly, communities are calling for efforts to launch a national conversation about alcohol's real effects, the alcohol norm and alcohol's place 
in British society in the present and future. This week's alcohol issues in science are about alcohol harm to the human brain. A new study has found even low-dose alcohol use can lead to brain damage in the form of loss of brain volume. These new findings have implications specifically for middle-aged and older people. It's a proven and well-established fact that alcohol use is a risk factor for dementia. For instance, the World Health Organization included avoiding alcohol as a recommendation in their guidelines to prevent dementia launched in 2019. Now, this new study published in Scientific Reports found that consuming alcohol even at the low risk limits led to brain damage in the form of loss of brain volume among middle-aged people. The study analyzed 300 people between the ages of 39 and 45 to understand the effects of alcohol use on the brain. Most people in the study reported that they consumed alcohol at low risk levels, meaning an average of less than 14 units of alcohol per week. The study found that there was a reduction in brain volume even at this low dose alcohol consumption for both women and men and even when controlled for other risk factors such as smoking. The study also showed frontal lobe damage due to alcohol and the frontal lobe is the part of the brain that is important for regulating behavior and thinking. Frontal lobe damage due to alcohol starts early on. The risk of brain damage from alcohol use is specifically high for the baby boomer generation who came of age in a pervasive alcohol norm. The baby boomer generation has been found most likely to consume alcohol heavily and least likely to live free from alcohol. The new findings are important because quitting alcohol and staying alcohol free completely can partially reverse brain damage due to alcohol. The findings are also important because they challenge the alcohol industry's promotion of so-called moderate alcohol use and the myth that low-dose alcohol consumption is not harmful. This week's alcohol issues concerning big alcohol dives into a new report about how health-harmful industries exploit COVID-19 for marketing purposes. A brand new report by the NCD Alliance and the Spectrum Research Consortium has exposed how big alcohol, along with other unhealthy industries, turns COVID-19 into the world's largest marketing campaign. The report outlines four major strategies used by these industries and contains more than 360 examples of alcohol industry activities exploiting the public health crisis to pursue profit maximization. The signaling virtue promoting harm unhealthy commodity industries and COVID-19 report collected and analyzed crowdsourced examples of corporate tactics across a number of health harmful industries, namely Big alcohol, big tobacco, big soda and junk food as well as breast milk substitutes, fossil fuel 
and gambling industries. More than 780 submissions were made, coming from over 90 countries from around the world. Interestingly, a majority of the examples, 363, were from the alcohol industry, followed by examples from junk food and sugar-sweetened drink products. Based on all this data, the report outlines four main strategies used by these industries. First, pandemic-tailored marketing campaigns and stunts. Second, corporate social responsibility programs. Third, fostering partnerships with governments, international agencies and NGOs. And fourth, shaping policy environments. The examples of alcohol industry efforts to exploit the pandemic are really shocking and often quite cynical. We listed some of them in our story, but the report details them across these four strategies identified. To read more about this week's alcohol issues and to provide you with more details and sources, we have referenced all stories in the show notes so that you can easily find the latest Science Digest, all alcohol policy stories and, of course, the latest alcohol industry revelations. We also link to facts discussed in the conversation with Dudley Tarleton of UNDP. And if you have feedback, questions and suggestions, please get in touch with us. We provide contact details in the show notes. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pinio, Taraka Ranchigoda, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dünbia. Our theme music is by LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week.